These days, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make all kinds of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more, right here in the USA. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs in towns and cities across the country. And jobs bring pride. Purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Get ready, Ohio. FanDuel, America's number one sports book, is coming to the Buckeye State. And to kick things off, you can get started with $100 in free bets as an early sign-up bonus. Plus, when you sign up today with promo code OHIOFD, you'll be all set when FanDuel goes live in Ohio. Then you can bet on all your favorite teams in all your favorite sports with $100 in free bets. Just download FanDuel's top-rated sportsbook app. It's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Ohio, this is your chance to get in on the action. Join today with promo code OHIOFD. Make every moment more with FanDuel, official sportsbook partner of the NFL. 21 or older and present in Ohio. Bonus issued in non-withdrawable free bets that expire seven days after FanDuel accepts its first real money sports wager in Ohio. one Unique user identity verification required. Offer ends on the go-live date. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. At Lowe's, we're your go-to for great gardening values every day. That's why we've lowered our price on select bagged mulch. Now starting at just $2.88 a bag. Mulch helps prevent weeds and retains moisture. And when you put it down around trees, shrubs, and flower beds, you'll see how beautiful it makes your outdoor space. Just in time to welcome back family and friends. Shop online and pick up in store. Lowe's, home to the best part of summer. Selection and product availability vary by location. While supplies last, U.S. only. Excludes Alaska and Hawaii.
Some cars are comfy on the inside but don't have power on the outside. And some cars have the horsepower but none of the comfort. I used to think there weren't any cars that were the total package. But that all changed when I got my Honda SUV. It's rugged and sophisticated. And right now, Honda has deals on the entire Honda SUV lineup. CRV, HRV, Pilot, Passport, you name it. So if you're looking for a car that's the total package, the only place you'll find it is at your local Honda dealer. Hurry before they're all gone. We're here for another episode of Film Study here today. Pleasure to be joined by Gordon McGinnis of PFF, who a uh, longtime uh, friend of mine and uh, very happy to have him back on the show. How are you doing, Gordon? Hey, Ken. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Okay. Uh, always a pleasure, of course. Uh, can you, first of all, tell us a little bit about your work at PFF and, and perhaps what PFF is so people have an understanding there? So PFF uh, stands for Pro Football Focus. Uh, we've been around now for over a decade. I think now you're going back. 13, 14 years, um, and we grade every player in every play um, in the NFL and also in college. Um, but we also do we also collect a whole bunch of stats, um, and we have contracts with every team in the NFL and uh, I think over 60 colleges as well who uh, buy that data from us and use that within their systems um, for a wide variety of things. There's teams who use the grades more. There's teams who use the um, statistics more, and there's teams who use the way they can link it to video more. Um, so there's quite a nice a nice range there. Uh, currently at PFF, I am uh, in charge of social media. Uh, I've kind of wore a lot of different hats over the years. Um, I've gone from just being a, a basic analyst to um, being in charge of special teams, um, to being a senior analyst, uh, and I've also had a, a heavy role in the content side. Um, but for now, I am very much full time just um, handling things on social media. So um, that's that's pretty much the bulk of my role right now. Now we see Monson and and uh, I want to get his name right. Is Palazzolo? Yes, yes, Steve Palazzolo. Yeah, Steve Palazzolo. Uh, we see them on the on the podcasts uh, and the YouTube videos and whatnot all the time. Do, are you have any video or podcast responsibilities that go with your job? No, so I, I did a little bit of podcasting a few years ago, but um, we record the video for all the podcasts now, so they're all handled um, by the guys who are in Cincinnati. So I'm I'm still living in Scotland, um, get to work from home, which is great. Um, those guys are the ones who've actually moved either from within the US to Cincinnati or, in Sam's case, moving all the way from Ireland. Um, so they handle the kind of uh, video and audio content from in-house there. All right. Very cool. One thing I want to ask you about before was in terms of the, the college scoring of PFF now, I know it started with the Power Five. Has it expanded now to a much broader range of conferences? Yeah, so we do we do everything um, in the FBS um, just now. We did a little bit of FCS grading last year. I think we're um, going to do the same again this year, um, but certainly everything in the FBS from um, even when even when Alabama play uh, the the lower teams they play late in the season for the the cupcake game, um, we cover those um, right through the the bowl games and the college football playoff. All right, very cool. Anything new product wise coming out from PFF or content wise that you want to make the listeners aware of? 
the the kind of main focus at PFF, I think, right now is just to continue um, pushing things forward. Uh, the the big focus in the off season is going to be um, our work towards the draft. I think that's something that over the last couple of years we've really worked to develop. And um, you know, last year we had our own live draft show on YouTube. I think the focus this year is going to be just to develop that further and make that even stronger. So um, that's something that I'm pretty excited about anyway. Okay, very cool. And, and you guys have a, some gambling content I know that's out there. A PFF Green Line is available as a as a service. You want to explain what that is? Yeah, so um, our, da- our data scientists have taken um, the grades uh, and they've used that to build a system um, that accounts for injuries and, and things like that um, and can give just an indication of um, how likely we think how likely we think uh, the teams are to cover the spread, how likely over and unders are to hit, um, but also will indicate times where we think there's like a big market um, inefficiency. Um, so if we think there's something that a spread should actually be three or four points higher, um, Greenline is going to point you to that. So um, it's it's an interesting tool um, mm-hmm. that I've had a little bit of fun using over the last couple of years, just seeing seeing where some of the interesting things are. And I think... If anyone likes fantasy football, it's actually quite a useful tool. I've used it in the past for daily fantasy because you can use Greenline to um, find out where the high implied totals in games are. Um, and I've used that then to select players because, um, you know, the system thinks that's going to be a game that's going to score a lot of points. Mm-hmm. OK, outstanding. Let's let's get back to current NFL news. Obviously, Black Monday was not quite as busy as had been expected around the NFL, by my count, five head coaching jobs were open. I, I, I'm hearing the reports that the Washington has already hired Rivera that I assume are true at this point. And But there are still jobs open in Cleveland, New York, Carolina, and Dallas. Did I miss any? Uh, I, think, I think that's it. I think the Dallas one isn't even official yet, but very much seems likely that that's going to be in the next day or so it'll be official it just seems to be the weird one with that is i think jason garrett's contract actually runs out in like 14 days or something but i think they want to make a decision obviously so that they can go on and hire someone else so well uh, his contract runs out in 14 days so he doesn't have to be fired they could just let it lapse you're saying okay yeah yeah that's right. it's an interesting interesting thing you just say he was not fired it, it, I, I suppose that's something but He's kind of already had the going away party by going out on the field with his family. It just it would seem a little strange now if he wasn't fired. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we also had the the, the Jacksonville situation, which was, you know, the reports were that Doug Marone was gone, and then um, some of the Jaguars higher up uh, hires up were tweeting about how, you know, that very much wasn't the case. And then I think they just announced today that he's definitely staying on for 2020. So. Um, yeah, that's a job that I think a lot of people thought was going to come up that, that hasn't come up this year um, and is potentially one that's more on the horizon for next year. All right. Now, of course, Ravens fans tremendously interested in what might happen to their two coordinators who have been a major part of the team's success. So obviously, uh, Wink Martindale and, uh, and Roman both have been mentioned in terms of head coaching jobs. Do you think there's a fit with any of the four remaining teams? I think... The one that intrigues me um, is Wink Martindale and the Giants. I think I saw a report that he would like to team up with uh, Joe Brady from LSU as his offensive coordinator there. But all the reports seem to be that uh, Matt Rule from Baylor is the big the big name there um, thereafter there. So um, 
assuming that goes to plan, I don't necessarily think either are the fit in Cleveland. I think someone like Mike McCarthy's um, probably a better fit there. Carolina, again, could be an interesting one, um, depending on what direction they are. But it wouldn't really shock me that much, especially if the Ravens, um, if, if, you know, if neither of them are hired this week, if the Ravens can go as far as the Super Bowl, it really wouldn't shock me at all to see both of them um, wind up sticking around for another year. That's uh, that's exciting news here, to be certain. One of the things you really get from reading the Cleveland message boards, talked a little bit about this on the defensive podcast yesterday, but it bears repeating, is that there's a sage piece of advice there from a fan base that is, has been consistently battered by coaching changes over the last 20 years, is that whatever player, what, sorry, whatever coach comes in needs to be able to work with the existing talents, strengths, and weaknesses and not try and bring in his own system and impose it upon this team. And one thing that's been very consistent with Greg Roman, at least, is that he really wants to run uh, the offense he, he wants to run with a tight end, heavy, tight end heavy offense and a quarterback who's fairly mobile. And really, that's not Baker Mayfield at all. Baker Mayfield's strength is you know build a, build a bunch of walls around him and let him pass from the pocket, use his mobility a little bit maybe to, to create some additional passing opportunities. But, you know, what he, Baker Mayfield on the move, throwing those fadeaway jumpers that he does is not the strength of the team, nor would a tight end heavy offense that effectively replaces what Beckham and Jarvis bring to the table, uh, you know, seem to be correct. So I looked at the Cleveland job and I said, as much as, you know, it would suck to have him go to the Browns and in the division, I just don't I don't see that as a fit at all. No, I agree. I think it would be it would be a strange fit. And I also I think what makes sense for Cleveland after the way this season went is probably someone who's been a head coach before who has that um, the kind of strength of leadership um, that a Mike McCarthy has because if you look at what happened in Cleveland this year there is talent there on both sides of the ball between uh, Mayfield the wide receivers and then guys like Miles Garrett on defense um, but they just lost games they should have won um, they became really poorly disciplined throughout the year. You know, all those things that point to uh, getting a head coach in who can really steady the ship and kind of just point them in the right direction. Because when the 2018 season ended, they were a team that looked like they were ready to start moving forward. And then they added um, some strong pieces in the off season and then just went backwards when the season began. So um, I think that's why they'll aim for someone like Mac- someone like McCarthy. All right. All right. Any strong feeling about Carolina or potentially even Dallas being a landing spot for either Martindale or Roman? Does it make sense in either place? Carolina's the one I I don't really think I have too much of a, a handle on. I could see them going a few different ways. Um, I think all the reports coming out of there from their new owner um, is that you know they are they want to to have like an analytics focus in Carolina, um, and that might be an interesting proposition given what the Ravens have done with decision-making this year. Um, in Dallas, I get the impression they're going to want a really big name um, just based on everything we've seen in the past. And, you know, when when Jason Garrett got the job there, um, he was the, the fairly hot name at the time. So I, I think Dallas, it could potentially be someone like a Lincoln Riley if they look to the college ranks. But I think they're going to want to make a bigger splash than necessarily the name value of uh, Roman and Martindale have. The interesting thing is, I think... Roman could potentially work quite well with Dak Prescott. I think, you know, he's not Lamar Jackson as an athlete, but does have the ability to 
cause some problems on the move. Um, and that might be an interesting fit there. But I just think they're going to aim for someone who's a bigger name. All right. Very interesting. I, I, I hope that both of the Ravens coordinators would value what they have in terms of an owner here, a very hands-off, you know, extremely measured hiring background owner who is not meddled, you know, to, to, the, to my way of understanding this in affairs the way that, say, Cleveland or Dallas, uh, you know, have been prone to do. So it's it, it. I hope they realize the, the the value of being in a in a town like this and and with working for an owner like Basadi with uh, uh, you know other jobs on the line here. Yeah, I think even if you look at what happened with uh, with Harbaugh last year, um, you know, Harbaugh was given a lot of opportunities where other head coaches might have been might have been fired for not being able to you know advance the team in the playoffs. Um, he showed the patience with Harbaugh, who then kind of reinventing themselves this year um and it you know it paid off massively so if they've seen that in action um in baltimore maybe that's something they're going to look for in their in their job um opportunities is an owner who's going to have a similar mentality and a similar buy-in to to their vision all right well, let's move on to some things about the last game against the Steelers because there was things to talk about, even though I, I don't know how much we can take from the game in terms of the weather and the personnel, but there are a few things that are worth talking about. And and the first is talking about RG3 and, and some of some things about maybe what his future is in the league to start with. Uh, I was excited by the fact that the team did not really need to overhaul their scheme to get some legitimate offensive productivity against the Steelers. It obviously wasn't at the Jackson level uh, due to weather and due to, due to you know, the ability of the people on the field, the ability of the other players on the field, but, but it was some offensive productivity. Yeah, and I think they, they had some success against one of the best defenses in the NFL this year. You know, the Steelers have had, the Steelers have a lot of talented players in that defensive front. TJ Watt might, might wind up being the defensive player of the year. Um, and they were able to to still get some chunk plays on the ground. Um, they were able to still find success thrown to tight ends. You know, it, it wasn't the type of offensive explosion that we've seen from the Ravens, but they were still able to to create some mismatches in the running game um, and open up some space to allow for some big plays. So I think when you look at the fact that it was very much um, a scaled-back Ravens team, it, it shows the the real value in how good the offensive system is that with so many key players rested, they were still able to, to have a significant amount of success in the game. Agree completely. And one of the things that came out of this game, I think more than others was reading RG three and how effective he is at reading the edge defender in the read option. He's just a very different player than Lamar Jackson in that Lamar Jackson he puts he sticks the ball in the mesh and he just seems to have an instinct for knowing it's like the the the, the video is slowing down then to 30 frames per second where he can advance at one click at a time you know kind of like you could do with a direct tv remote and and he can see the exact point that's better to pull best to pull the football with the absolutely unoptimal leverage of the feet of the edge defender and, and I just, in Griffin, I'm watching him do the same things, and he just does not seem to read it nearly as well in terms of snatching the ball and taking off with it. And some of it's a speed-related thing, but some of it's actually the read-related thing, because I think Griffin is still fairly fast. Yeah, I, I mean, he's not as fast. You could tell he's not as fast as, as Lamar is. 
Um, and I think one of the big takeaways for me from this game was just the reminder of just how special an athlete Lamar is. Um, but the the elements of being able to read the edge defender and things like that, I think probably led to Griffin take, taking some hits in that game mm-hmm. that Jackson doesn't take. Um, so, yeah, that's something that I think is quite interesting. Yeah, you bring up a great point because it got, it got to be a very chippy game in terms of hits after the handoff. And at the at the game, by the way, horrible wet experience. I'll tell you that. <laughs> it's, it's almost never been more uncomfortable at a football game than that. But the but the uh, thing that I noticed time after time is Griffin turning to the officials and screaming at them is for late hits after the thing. And of course. The quarterback is not protected after a fake handoff under the NFL rules. So they're allowed to go ahead and hit the quarterback under that. But Griffin was saying, no, they're way too late on this. You know, it's, it's absurd I don't have the football. I can show them they don't have the football and they're still hitting me kind of thing. Uh, and, and he was going to the officials and, and complaining about that multiple times from early on in the game. You know, in terms of what you're seeing, do you think this is something the Steelers have now decided? And you may have been the person at PFF who brought this up that said the best option that opposing teams have is just to go after Jackson on every read option play as a, and forget about the running back. Yeah, it's, it's a weird, it, it felt like a weird way that it was happening because it did feel like it was kind of like a, a clear part of the game plan was to make sure they got hits on the quarterback. And it, it felt a bit strange for it to be Griffin and not and not Jackson yes. that, was the, that was the target there. The other thing I noticed, there was one play that, and I may have completely misread the play, it was something I, I was watching live and didn't see a replay of it, but it felt like it was just a general handoff. There wasn't any read option aspect, and then there was a hit on Griffin on that play. Um, so it, it was a really strange thing, and I wonder if it's just the... I wonder if it's the the physical nature of Raven Steelers games that they came into that. I think I also read reports that there were Steelers players getting upset because um, the the Tennessee Houston game was on the big screen quite a lot, as if that was um, being done to needle them. So I don't know if there was maybe some <laughs> kind of frustration that that um, that led to all that. But it's an interesting dynamic because obviously defenses have to be allowed to play both the quarterback and the and the back on the read option, but in circumstances whereby the ball is clearly gone, you know, are they going to eventually look to to have some form of unnecessary roughness rule? Because the league's not going to want a guy like Lamar Jackson to take hits that one could injure him, and you know, it means he's not playing. But two, also make them look bad by having a rule which allows you know a hit to happen. Um, when he clearly doesn't have the ball. So it'll be interesting to see if they try and differentiate from that in the future, but it's the kind of thing that might actually require an injury for them to take notice of it. uh, All all the the changes to how you can hit quarterbacks seem to have come from injuries to quarterbacks, you know, big hits that have caused concussions, low hits that have caused torn ACLs. So um, it'll also be interesting to see if other teams try and play Jackson that way. The, The interesting thing that I think the the speed difference between RG3 and Lamar, I think potentially also allows teams to be a little bit more aggressive like that because Lamar's just made defenders look silly at times when they've tried to, you know, come in towards him and all of a sudden he just jukes past them and, and leaves them for dust. Um, so the difference in athleticism there might just might also be the difference in the ability to actually lay a big hit on him in the backfield because something I think I've noticed, and this is more anecdotal as opposed to something that I've, I've properly studied, 
it feels like Jackson is actually quite good at after the mesh point happens on the read option he's you know moving out of the way be it either to run the ball or also once you know once the running back clearly has the ball he seems very good at getting himself away from contact and making sure that he's not going to take a hit so um, I think that's something that people probably don't give him enough credit for Uh, he took a big hit in the Cleveland game um, where he was kind of pointing for a block downfield uh, and you know took a big hit because the block fell away but Outside of that, I can't remember that many big hits he's taken all year because he's very good at getting himself out of bounds and very good at... Also, when he takes a hit going forward, he's already on his way to the ground, so he's not taking huge big hits. I think that's been quite an impressive part of his game. Yeah, you, you've you you've just hit on an incredibly rich topic. I'm actually doing a study that I'll publish this uh, during the bye week here about all the, the hits that Jackson has taken this this year. The biggest hits he's taken have been on quarterback hits. So he's been yeah, in the pocket yeah, and, and it's not, not even sacks because most of the sacks he's running away from pressure and gets taken down just like a normal tackle on a run play. And unless the defender falls right on top of him, most of those contact situations are not bad. They're torso hits. They're not leg hits and they're not head hits. So, and, and they're not with a defender crashing down on top of you who's a lot heavier. So he's, he's taken very few hits when he's actually run the ball. There have been a few Boyle, the missed Boyle block, on the right sideline comes to mind. There was another one against the Jets that was way too big a hit to take. There have been a half dozen to a dozen of those this season, but it really hasn't been that much. And I want to go back to the other point you made, though, about in the backfield. The nature of the mesh point is that it's the the defender on the, on the read option side who's allowed in the backfield is on the other side of the running back from Lamar. So it should be difficult for him to get to him. And Lamar then has two advantages. One is there's this running back in the way that he can use to avoid that defender. That's limited, of course. But the big one is Lamar's so much better at reading the leverage of that defender that it's not just his quickness and the ability to, to you know, make that first first quick step. It's his ability to read where the defender's next step is going that's giving him the ability to, to, to avoid that contact in the backfield. But I completely agree with you. He's far better. He's, he's a, a different cat entirely from RG3 in terms of avoiding that contact after the mesh point. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I also, I think the threat of him as a runner just changes what defense is, how they have to play him. Because, you know, the, the difference in RG3 being a good athlete and where Lamar is, is the difference between uh, some of the runs that RG3 had that went for six, seven yards. Uh, and ones that Lamar takes for 35, 40 yards. So I think that forces defenses to play it a little bit differently as well and be a little bit more cautious to try and try and slow them down rather than taking a, a big chance and being made to look pretty silly. All right. Uh, is there anything from this game you saw in Griffin's performance that would say that he could return to a starting role at a future time? And I'm really when I'm talking about starting role, I'm saying that there's a team somewhere that would take a chance on him at the beginning of a season – uh, as opposed to when they have a serious injury to their starter. No, I mean there wasn't really anything in that game that that I think is going to have people, um, you know, clamoring for him to be their starting quarterback from day one. Um, I think what it showed is that he very much has a place in the NFL, um, and I think the success of the Ravens' offense this year will probably lead to more teams looking to have similar offensive schemes. Um, as we, you know, get more um, high-level athletes 
at quarterback coming out of coming out of college. So it possibly opens up more opportunities for him in general, but I don't think it necessarily opens up the door to a starting job for him. I think the rain probably didn't help, but it also didn't showcase him as um, a top level free agent either. Right. Definitely. He, he, the point you make, I mean, with other read option quarterbacks, if there are going to be say three more of those in the league, then Jackson has three more immediate spots as a backup because he's a tremendous mentor under those situations. And, you know, he can run that same offensive scheme, uh, you know, that you would have in place manageably as a, as a backup. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Let's move on. Talk about the offensive line scoring a little bit from this game. So this is obviously something where I, I, you've got the PFF scoring and I've got my own in terms of this. We can do some comparison, maybe try and reconcile some differences if there are any here. Uh, I'll go through this. And I said Hurst, uh, who got the start at left tackle, played all but five snaps. Uh, rated a D plus or by mine, he had seven missed blocks, a lot of penetration. I charged him with a quarter of a pressure, one and a half quarterback hits and two thirds of that sack. Did, did PFF give him the entire sack? I, I did not notice. Uh, so in terms of how we, um, charge sacks, we don't deal in half sacks. We just like, mm-hmm. consider everything a sack itself. Um, let me just check and see if we had, um, Oh, I can't get this page to load up. Just now. I'll tell you what, I'll um, continue on talking about this and you, you, you take the time and, and look it up. So 39 points out of 62, uh, a 0.63 score as a raw uh, adjustment of 0.06, grade of a D plus. You know, Hurst in many ways returned to what Hurst has pretty much been at left tackle over the years. Last uh, start he had was his second best of 17, 18 career starts at left tackle. So this was number 19. And, uh, you know, it was one of uh, a more average start to get a D-plus, frankly, for, for James Hurst. Uh, really shows that Ronnie Stanley is an important signing, I think, in the future. And, uh, you know, the Ravens, I think, need to make sure they have another tackle available on the team. They had Parker Ainger playing some in this game at right tackle when Hurst was, uh, was lost briefly. But, uh, you know, not every team has the has – the, kind of the, the, the nice position to have a backup tackle on the on the team. Yeah, I, I think your your D grade pretty much comes in around but whereas ours were it was around about um sixty we had overall for, for Hurst on the game. So um I, I mean he is I, I think you know what he is um based on what he's been in the league. He's not a guy that I think you can rely on to start a significant amount of time, especially at tackle. Um, and yeah, I think the the difference between him and someone like Stanley, who you know has as a pass blocker, just fits what the Ravens did this season perfectly. Um, yeah, the the difference there is is stark. All right, I want to talk about Stanley a little bit more, but I'm going to defer it till we get over to Orlando Brown because I think it's an interesting comparison there. We'll we'll go with Bozeman next, and uh, uh, Bozeman had, as I scored, it ten missed blocks in the game, but he avoided a lot of the pressure events that he's been he's been commonly having or had was commonly having when he wasn't playing well. Uh, half a pressure only in this game. The Ravens didn't pass all that much, but uh, he grades out as a B for me. Six level two blocks, made twelve of fifteen pulls in this game. So that's a very high pull total even for him, and Roman's scheme has him pulling a lot. He's been very successful at it. 12 out of 15 is is good, not at the very top of what he's been this year, but uh, but solid. Two other combination blocks in the game I liked. His highlights uh, improved his score slightly, but a B overall grade. 
And by the way, I know we've had some differences in scoring on this, although I haven't looked at it recently. I've now got Bozeman with one, two, three, four, five, six, seven consecutive games to close out the season of a B or higher. And he had been having a lot of trouble early in the year, uh, particularly picked up 3.67, three and two thirds sacks in the first six games, has not had one since. Had, well, I, I gave him a third of a five yard penalty, but he, but he had effectively um, 25 yards of penalties in the first six games and has only had five yards of penalties since. So, you know, definitely a guy who's significantly improved. Has he shown that kind of improvement in PFF grading or has it not been quite as great or for what reason? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you look at his his game by game grades, um, the the last four games, uh, without looking at other seasons, but just going from memory, uh, I think have fairly comfortably been has fairly comfortably been the best four game stretch of his career, um, and it's not it's nothing that's, you know, he's not he's not standing out as a guy who's like a, a crushing dominant blocker, but I think he's cut down a lot in the mistakes, um, and he's developed in the in the later stages of 2019 into a pretty solid um, part of an offensive line. All right. All right, let's move on to uh, Patrick McCary. Now, he's been greatly praised by the coaches, which I thought has been, frankly, a little bit of coach speak up until this week. But uh, a physical player at center, which I like, and, you know, the Ravens have not always had. They certainly have had a lot of fairly non-physical centers uh, since Matt Burke left. But uh, he's a guy who also has arm length issues that seem to show up regularly and getting shed. In this game, not as bad, and I think some of that Joe Frazier-esque length that he has, and I'm really showing my age with that. I ought to use a Vitaly Klitschko reference or something for a, a, more, a more recent boxer that people know. Uh, but, but anyway, McCary would be the short-arm guy who would get inside of uh, Klitschko's long reach and, and do damage when he could. Uh, McCary has uh, a B in this game. Uh, one half of a quarterback hit. I've got him for one half of pressure, six missed blocks, missed blocks and pressures for that matter. All should be less at center where they, where they, that guy knows his blocking assignment right off the bat. And McCary's been having a problem with missed blocks. A lot of those have been sheds in terms of the action verm these last four weeks. Uh, what have you guys seen at PFF about him? Be in this game, by the way, for him. Yeah, I think that's around, but we were maybe slight. We've got him at 60.8, which is maybe probably around about that. Um, kind of C, probably around the C level. Um, we've had him a little bit up and down since he took over the starting job, but he's had some solid games in there. Um, there's not, there's not really any consistency between. You know, it's not like you can say he's he's graded well as a pass blocker and struggled as a run blocker. Um, going through his games, it it seems more like that. Um, he has a game where he's stronger as a pass blocker and that game he's a little bit weaker as a run blocker and then vice versa the next week and things like that. So I think that probably just speaks to an overall, overall inconsistency of a guy who's less experienced and uh, maybe a little bit physically overmatched with the arm line things that you touched on there. Yeah, he's got 35 penalty yards in five weeks, which has been a significant portion of the downgrades I've given him, including three holding calls. So it's it's really hard to get away from from uh, some bad grading when that's uh, that's part of the basis of that. Yeah, I'll move exactly. on. I'm sorry about that. I'll move on to, to uh, uh, right guard and Parker Inger got the start, and then we, of course, saw Ben Powers later in the game. Uh, I wanted to get see if I could get that single snap reconciled for you, but I've got him with 44 snaps and uh, one false start penalty. Gave up, I gave him, charged him with half of a sack, uh, one and a quarter pressures in this game. Ended up with a D. Uh, wasn't a particularly strong game for injured. 
anything you guys saw that was particularly different from that? The, uh, I mean, from a pass blocking um, perspective, um, that's pretty much pretty much right where we have it. Um, we we had them with uh, one sack and one pressure um, and a penalty as well. I don't know if that was in the pass protection or run blocking. Yeah, that's uh, so uh, we definitely we had powers with the stronger game um, of the two. Yeah, I, I would agree by far. Um, and this is this is one of the things that bothers me about a week seventeen gun like this. Why was it necessary to start Anger in a game like this? The Ravens had nothing on the line. They they certainly want to see what they've got in a first-year player like Powers. And then, to make matters worse, Powers has been inactive every single week of the season, while players like Grassou and Anger and others who have been you know journeyman linemen coming through the organization have been active, and Powers all of a sudden has just a terrific game in his first ever action with the Ravens. Uh, all at right guard, I have him for four missed blocks, as no negative scores of any sort. Uh, 25 out of 29 gives him a .86. With adjustment, he's an A. Um, two blocks in level two, one out of one pulls. Made one nice combination block for his only highlight. What, what else did you guys see that was you, know, you could point to? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's pretty much right where we right where we had him in this game. And even if you look at the preseason, I think he had some really nice um, games as a pass blocker in preseason as well. So um, you would have liked to have seen him get more time than he got in this game, even giving him the full game, just so they could see a little bit more of what they have. I mean, I suppose from from a coaching perspective, you know, they're looking at um, tr- maybe trying to see what they have in both him um, and Ehinger, uh, you know, heading into the playoffs in case someone gets hurt. Um, but from a long-term perspective, you would have liked to have seen more from Powers because uh, it was a really nice performance from him. Um, and he's a guy who, you know, for a fourth-round draft pick, you would imagine they're expecting him to be um, a full-time starter at some point in his career. So uh, it would have been great to have seen a little bit more work for him, get him a little bit more experience against uh, a very experienced defensive front in Pittsburgh's, um, you know, and build towards 2020 for him, which will be the key year for his development. So you mentioned an interesting thing there was who might get playing time in the playoffs. Do you think this game out of powers relative to the game that Inger had here, which is obviously not as good, might give him a spot on the set as the seventh man on the offensive line during the playoffs? Yeah, I mean, if if they if they're judging it purely based off of how they played, um, then I think it would make sense to, to have powers um active uh, as a as you know the seventh offensive lineman or um but i suppose it depends what they're looking for um in that seventh offensive lineman are they looking for a guy who can play multiple positions do they you know trust him to do a, a fairly solid job at a different position or you know is it someone who they're potentially going to use as in, in like a swing tackle situation but on a pure on a on the basis purely of how they performed this week um powers would be the guy who would who would get a spot um, on the active roster for me. Well, they'd been, it actually had Grassou active as the seventh guy because he's a backup center, I believe. At least that's the only reason I can really come up with, uh, just in case something were to happen. They don't really want to move Bozeman, even though he has extensive time at center, obviously in college, and then also at the, at the pro level during the preseason. Uh, but they didn't, I think they're, the theory is you only move one lineman and it's not as big a deal, or you only have to wait one change for injury. It's not that big a deal. Uh, so it may be that they just want the backup for, for McCary 
to be available there. And, and Powers, I don't believe, would be that guy. I don't think he's got any past experience in center that I'm aware of. Yeah, I mean, that, that makes the most sense, I think, based on based on who they have on the roster. All right. So I wanted to make sure I talk about Orlando Brown and obviously Stanley in this in this sense. Um, I noted that there was a PFF comment about how few pressure events the entire Ravens offensive line had allowed this year. All right. I'm a little bit more strict, I think, on proximity pressures. But the guy who has benefited just tremendously in terms of reducing his pressure rate and, and quarterback hit and sack rate is uh, is Brown, who two things happen with the read option. The first is that Brown is given the opportunity to down block on a defensive tackle, typically instead of blocking an edge rusher, which is an enormously different and easier responsibility. Then he has the ability either to hit that scraping linebacker, what I call moving only half a level up, as opposed to making a true level two block where he has to find somebody in space, both responsibilities easier. Brown has done well with that. The other thing is as a pass blocker with a desire to create controlled rush lanes, to contain Lamar, that Brown has done a better job in terms of being able to use his bull rush as opposed to having to use his length to uh, beat off some speed rushers uh, that, that are trying to beat him in either direction. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the scheme the scheme definitely um, helps there, and it also allows them to uh, play to, to his skill set as well and things he's good at. Um, we've seen his grade jump up um, a little bit from – 66 in 2018 to 71.8 so just around about the 72 mark um but yes yeah, pass blocking grades jumped up by seven points um so yeah i think that what they're doing offensively along with um him taking a little bit of a step forward has uh has been a nice development for the ravens this year is is the pff's grading methodology do they mitigate the advances he's made as a blocker by saying that that down block is easier, so he gets less credit for that, for example? Yeah. So um, going back to, to my days as an analyst, um, for in, in the running game, if you're um, a tackle, down blocking on a defensive tackle, and it's a, it's a block that you, know, you expect him to be able to make and seal fairly easily, then it's not going to get um, a significant positive grade. It's going to get uh, a small bump based on... Uh, the way things work in the system, but you're not necessarily giving it a strong, um, a strong positive grade there. Um, the kind of the expected blocks are things which get um, less of a grade as opposed to when uh, when someone has to actively you know go and move someone. Like uh, I think we've seen Marshall Yanda do a great job this year of um, reaching guys and all those things. Those things are going to get a higher block than a guy who is effectively um, doing what he's asked to do, but doing something that should be significantly easier than you know having to actually um make a move to get somewhere all right let's peel a layer of the onion one level deep because i want some i want people to understand what's going on with pff underneath if the, if he makes then a a, a let's say he does a, a two-part block on that where he hits first of all the uh, defensive tackle with a down block and then moves up that half a level and obstructs or blocks the scraping linebacker who might be coming there so it creates a creates wash or or just block somebody straight up at that point yeah, on the zero sorry on the plus two to minus two scale would that be a, like a plus 0.5 then for him doing that successfully most of the time yeah yeah i mean like obviously no play is created equally but the the general the general um basis of that that would be like normally a plus 0.5 block and that's 
that that's kind of how a guy gets the plus 0.5 taking it from the expected block which is you know the easy down block but then moving that to the second level and either taking out or influencing the the linebacker by you know being able to get in his way in some form or another that's what that's what takes that block to to something that gets a, a better grade like a plus 0.5 okay very good very good Always good to have that understanding. And, and a lot of us you know, grew up with PFF when it was the plus two to minus two scale. And I think this, the system was more transparent and more accessible than to, to people who were analysts and, and were, were looking at it and trying to understand it at that level. It's, it's less so obviously now when we're presented with a grade. It's just the nature of, of proprietary football analytics is in order to sell it, you can't may, maybe show us everything about it. Yeah, and the the other thing as well, you're when you're trying to market to, you're kind of trying to market to everyone. Um, I, I know from my perspective, I I mean I effectively grew up with the the plus minus system as well. Um, so there's parts of that that for me were a lot easier to understand. Um, and then when you you know when you have a lot of people coming at it from a, a kind of general public thing, a lot of people have this you know zero to 100 belief when it comes to things like madden and things like that so um it's it's the balance between um the kind of the analytical side of things and also just what the the general public are also looking for all right all right very cool good explanation again i think that the reader the listeners will really appreciate that uh let's talk about some concerns for the ravens in general heading into the playoffs right now because there are uh you know certainly some time off here that might be an impact. Obviously, other teams are playing, judging from the Ravens' past, playing immediately in that wildcard weekend has not been a bad thing in terms of what well, was in 2018, but in past years where they won five straight times on wildcard weekend or, or in their first game, it had not been a bad thing to not have rest. Yeah, and I mean, you'll remember this. My So my memory of the Ravens having... Um, a bye week isn't necessarily the the time where they got Houston in the divisional round. Mm-hmm. Um, it's when they had the thirteen and three year had the bye week, Ugh. and then you know looked looked awful against uh, the Indianapolis Colts, which is one of my uh, least favorite football memories is uh, is watching that game. So, no, were you? I got to dig down a little bit. You you were a Ravens fan all the way back then in two thousand six because it's my worst day as a football fan ever. Yeah, I I mean I think it's probably similar um, to me. I, I so I. First started watching football um, just when the Ravens won their first Super Bowl. I think the very first game I saw just switching on the TV was the AFC Championship game. Um, so I wouldn't really say I was a fan for like another couple of years. I just watched and like I'd, I'd found the Ravens really interesting in all the build up to the Super Bowl. So I just kind of paid attention there. But yeah, by the time it got to to the that year where the um, 13-3 and team lost, I was very much. I was very much invested um, and that that was that's one of those sporting events and I've had this in various sporting events throughout life but that's one of the ones that takes a little bit of time to kind of come out of the cloud of watching that watching that game it took it takes a little bit of time to you know get back to the okay I can enjoy watching football because it just it was the type of game that you came away feeling like I, I don't understand why that's gone the way it has based on everything you'd saw throughout the season. Um, you know, to hold a, a Peyton Manning team to, what was it, 15 points, I think they held them to, and, and not win that game at home just, even now, still boggles my mind a little bit. Yeah, uh, utterly miserable. I, 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 
I was supposed to meet some people for a business event after the game. And I just, I said, I can't inflict myself upon them. <laughs> the, the way, the way I feel about this. I mean, I, I need to go home. I need to, you know, and it took me, normally I get right into the decomposition of a game. It's actually part of a, a you know, a cathartic process of looking at the analysis and, and you, you kind of can get by some of the upsetness, even after a game like the Browns earlier this year, that they got wiped out at home by a not particularly great team. To go through and look at it and say, oh, okay, I see they made a couple adjustments. That's good. You know, this 88-yard run was a lot of what went wrong, bad. But, you know, it's just, you can get past it with the analysis. It helps. That game, there was no getting over that. I mean, for the finality of the season was bad enough. But even the, the 2011 loss at New England with, with Cundiff missing the field goal and Evans getting stripped in the end zone, uh, that was not as bad as the 2006. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I I went to that game as well. So that was my that season was my first year at PFF um, as a part timer. Um, so the part timers worked during the regular season, but not the playoffs. Um, so when the regular season ended, um, I, a friend of mine who lived over in Baltimore at the time was like, "Oh, you should, you know, if they win this game, you should go to the AFC Championship game." There was a radio station that were running a trip from Baltimore by bus. Um, so I very quickly, kind of on a whim, the the night they beat Houston, flew over, um, or not flew over, but booked flights to fly over, and went up. And I think, you know, that that wasn't a nice experience the way that game ended. But by the time the bus got back to Baltimore, it was kind of like, you know, I've had a nice experience getting to come over and go to the game. Um, but the the 06 loss was just like a different a different level of loss, I think. Right. I, I agree. I think it's, it's expectations based in part. And, and it, tying this back now to the 2019 team, I think a loss to Tennessee or to Houston or to Buffalo, for that matter, if they come to Baltimore, it, you know, in two weeks and were to somehow cobble together a win against the Ravens. And it's not impossible, despite the fact that they've beaten all, you know, they've beaten two of these teams. They haven't beaten the Titans yet. I, I could easily see it being as bad as the 2006 loss to the Colts. Could easily yeah. see it. Yeah, I think the way the way 2019 has gone, um, you know, there is there's like a strong Super Bowl or bust feeling um, about how they've done because they've been so good in the regular season um, to wrap up the number one seed a week before, um, you know, to go into that. I think the the acceptable way um, to lose, if there is an acceptable way to lose. Would be you know, a shootout against the Kansas City Chiefs, whereby Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs just outscore. I mean that, that to me is the most logical way that the Ravens don't make the Super Bowl. I think if they don't, if it's not through through that, um, I think Houston are the type of team who can put up enough points if they get hot. Um, but I think even then, the Ravens have to either have like a subpar game from Lamar Jackson or just get a bit of bad luck. I mean, I think. New England, I'm never going to discount for obvious reasons, but um, the way they've played recently, New England, um, Buffalo, Tennessee, I think it, it not only requires them to play badly, and Lamar in particular to play badly, but it requires them to get a little bit of bad luck. Like It requires them to go for it on fourth and three at midfield a couple of times and, and not make it. Um, you know, Maybe they go for it three times, don't make it any time at all, um, and it creates a short field for the other team. Maybe they have a turnover in the red zone, their own red zone, and you know it sets things up. It feels like they need something to really go against them against a lot of teams out with Kansas City who can outscore them. So, if these things go wrong, I think it's going to be it's going to be a pretty devastating loss. 
Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, Tannehill's been hot recently, so he might be a guy at Tennessee who can put up some points against the Ravens. But just the, the one of the real impressive things about the Ravens this year has been the points per drive. And when you look at yeah. it, they're 3.08 points per drive when you when you take out the kneels, and that's a football outsider stat. But the it's the fourth highest of all time. There's just not any other team in the league that can keep up with Lamar Jackson, you know, drive for drive, exchanging blows. It's like uh, you know, trying to trying to stand in against George Foreman and just exchange blows with him, you just don't do it. It's uh, anyway, uh, too many boxing yeah. references well, for one. Show. I mean, I I I, t- I tweeted this out the other night. Like the the fact that Greg Roman has um, delivered or designed an offense that not only broke the the single season rushing record for a team. But did that at the same time while the quarterback leads the NFL in touchdown passes, and did that in only 15 games. It's just like that's like a mind-boggling stat to me. Like they've been so successful running the ball, they've been so successful passing the ball. You know, we at PFF we've been very much um, strong on the the whole the value of the running game and the value of running backs. But the Ravens' offense, the Ravens' running game this year would be, I don't know exact the exact number, but earlier on in the season, it was like the eighth passing offense in the NFL or something like that. Like they're getting value out of the running game at a level that is unheard of. And their their value in the passing game is huge as well. So the they've made, they've made um, a huge statement in terms of how well they've run the ball, but just the difference in the passing game and how successful they've been there I, I don't think anyone really expected them to be this good, um, even in their wildest dreams as a passing offense this year. Yeah, it certainly did. I mean, the maturation, the ability for him to read the field, the ability for him to create different vectors to hit a receiver. One of the things that you know, we talked about this a little bit yesterday on the on the defense podcast, but Lamar Jackson in the red zone is very different from almost any other NFL quarterback and certainly for, different from any pocket quarterback. Pocket quarterbacks have a very limited set of throws they can make. In, in the red zone in short yardage with a highly compacted field. The first thing, uh, uh, okay, so they've got the fade route, and every team runs that. And they've got uh, other outside routes, which are, are often failure to, to, to you know, drop back to the nine, throw the ball to the five, hope your guy can beat one defender to get in the end zone. There's some of that. Those often are, are, are not successful. They can throw zipper routes where they're throwing a high pass to a receiver crossing between the goalposts. There just are not that many you know, routes they have available to them, to them, they, they can, they certainly can run slants, but they're, they're risky, you know, in, in that part of the field, they actually have, have greater risk than just about anywhere else. I just, Lamar Jackson creates new vectors to get the ball to the, to a, to a different receiver where he can throw a, a ball on a line as opposed to on an arc in the red zone is tremendously valuable. Yeah. And I think if you look at the, the Cleveland game, um, Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead, oh, Jordan. Uh, yeah, if you uh, if you look at the Cleveland game, um, there was that throw where you know he avoided the pressure and then you know, throws it up for Mark Andrews, and a lot of people afterwards were talking about how you know oh that's a throw that should have been intercepted, this that and the next thing. It's not really, and the the whole value in what Lamar did there is he threw that away from the defenders. Like he put that in a mm-hmm. position whereby it's either Mark Andrews coming down with it or it's incomplete. He's put it in a position whereby the defender who everyone thinks should make the interception just can't because he's put above and over him. I mean, the defender's going to have to make a ridiculous play to make that an interception. And 
he's had a lot of plays like that, and he, he just he seems to one he seems to understand things, but two he's also playing with a ridiculous level of confidence just now. Um, that you know, he, in a in a similar way that Mahomes was last year, that he just he trusts that when he lets the ball go, whether his arm is you know at a fifty five degree angle, a sixty degree angle, a forty degree, whatever it winds up being, he's confident that it's going exactly where it needs to be. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And and Boykin has had two touchdowns this year that exactly match kind of the profile of what you described in the Andrews catch that was over the defender. Was it, was, I think it was Demarius Randall in that game against Cleveland. Yeah, I think but, so, yeah. But it, I, I go back to the first game of the year, and this was one of my favorite Lamar throws. Of the game. He, it, it was fading back tremendously in a red zone throw against Miami. He saw three things there. He saw two backs from the defender. One of them was Minka Fitzgerald. I'm not sure who the other one was. Might have been Rowe. And Boykin was be- was between them, but facing back towards Lamar. Lamar threw the ball up to a spot in the end zone that was about 10 yards to the left of those two backs. And he knew that Boykin was the only one who could react quickly enough to get to that football. I've seen other people, you know, say, maybe he's throwing up for a, for a single, you know, a, a, a jump ball there. But I think that was on retreating from the line of scrimmage at the rate he was, that was just a remarkable read of the slot machine to get exactly the payoff he wanted of eyes from his own guy and back back, which is the winning combination then to have a touchdown there for Boykin. It's just, it was, it was one of the most amazing throws of the season. It still happened in just week one. Yeah. And I think as well, like looking back to week one, you know, it was very much uh well, it was, you know, it's just the dolphins. Um, you know what's what's transpired since then. You know, I think it was funny watching that the Dolphins game was um, a huge game, obviously for him. And then he had that great throw against the Arizona Cardinals um, to seal the game yes. uh, down the right sideline. And then you know his next couple of weeks against Kansas City and Cleveland took a little bit of a step back. The Pittsburgh game was a little bit um, tougher for him. But since then, even even games where he has like a, a kind of maybe an average start to the game you just you know that at some point he's going to make a special throw he's going to make a special play with his legs it's been it's been a really fun season to watch um just from a, an enjoying football perspective as well yeah it's kind of he he, he he you don't have any set expectation for what he might be able to do and i really haven't felt this way with a quarterback in baltimore and baltimore really hasn't had the hot young quarterback in the league since burt jones in the mid-1970s so it's been a very long time for for Baltimore football fans. Uh, this, this is a magic carpet ride of a season in terms of of what's going on. Just I'm so fearful of the uh, the rug being pulled out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, exactly. All right, let's let's talk about just maybe each take a take an item in terms of what other concerns you have entering the playoffs. And I, I mentioned the the rust thing as a possibility, but you, how about you take one? Yeah, so I mean I, I touched on it there. The big one for me is just that. Um, and they get really unlucky. Uh, so much of what the Ravens have done this year uh, is, has been about Harbaugh um, and Roman putting them in position on offense to be successful, taking those chances on fourth down, but also how that opens up the playbook on third down, because if you know you're willing to run the ball, if you know you're willing to run a play on fourth and two, fourth and three, you know, you're not then restricted to trying to throw beyond the sticks on third and eight. You can then run something that's going to gain five, six yards. So the worry for me is that 
they just get really unlucky in these situations. And I said there, you know, if they go for it in a game, let's say they go for it four times and they just, they never get it just through bad luck. You know, a couple of great individual plays by a defensive player. uh, Maybe someone slips and trips up, something like that. Those things can, can, you know, flip a game fairly quickly on its head um, because it gives a short field to the, to the opposing offense or something where turnovers, you know, Jackson has been very good at not putting the ball in harm's way. Um, His fumbles from his rookie year to now um, have been significantly better. Mm -hmm. So the worry for me is that they get a little bit of bad luck there, you know, the ball coming loose in it at the mesh point and all of a sudden it's turned over in the red zone. Um, some of Lamar Jackson's interceptions this year have been ridiculously unlucky and, you know, there've been throws that haven't been perfect throws, but they shouldn't have been picked off, but they've bounced off a receiver's hand and they've, you know, flown up in the air. I think that, that for me would be the big concern is that all the things they're doing um, so well, they just get the bad luck that they've kind of avoided for pretty much the whole year. Um, and I think luck's one of those things that everyone kind of thinks luck always evens itself out. And I think that's probably fairly true to a point. But I think in the sample season of an NFL year, it's not always necessarily in that year. I think we've seen in terms of, um, you know, if you look at the the numbers of interceptions that quarterbacks throw, um, that can fluctuate year to year. But if we look at um, turnover-worthy plays by quarterbacks in our grading system, they stay a lot a lot more static and a lot uh, similar, which speaks to the luck that kind of comes with these interceptions. You can have a season whereby you just don't get picked off in a lot of those passes. So um, the bad luck is something I think could be something that just ruins the season for them. Right. I, I, I certainly agree in terms of deflection interceptions. And he's he's through he threw one very bad interception at Pittsburgh on the left sideline, I remember. But it has been a lot of deflections in terms of the uh, of uh, the other interceptions on the year. So I agree completely. I'm going to come up with another one that would be, in a sense, bad luck. But weather has been a big factor for Lamar. And obviously, OK, just going through the whole chain of obviousness here, uh, offense needs space. Lamar creates more space than any other individual player in the entire NFL under optimal conditions. Okay, he creates space by by being a hard to defend individual player. He creates it in the running game and he creates it in the passing game as well by having forcing other defenders to to focus on him. And if weather can take that as away as it did in Buffalo with high wind, as it has in some of these multiple rain games now, the Ravens have played the last couple of years. Uh, you know, that's a that's an, a possibility for him, for the Ravens offense to get some very bad luck um, in the playoffs that would severely mitigate not only his value, but potentially Tucker's as well. Yeah, I agree. And the the thing that kind of compounds that for me is that, the, you know, the likely opposition, if they make it to the AFC championship games, the Kansas City Chiefs and the one quarterback who. You know, very much wasn't affected by playing a game in the snow that you know should have massively impacted him a couple of weeks ago was Patrick Mahomes. He, you know he had a phenomenal game in the snow um, against the Broncos, I think it was. Um, so if the Ravens' offense gets slowed down against an offense that can put up some points on the opposite side um, because of the weather, then yeah, that's something that I think could cause a big problem. All right. How about uh, does the disappearance of Marquise Brown these last five weeks concern you in terms of its playoff implications? Uh, a little bit. I think I was thinking about this the other day, and I think 
Um, you know, injuries obviously limited him at parts of the season. Um, and he's also been a little bit more of a kind of um, feast or famine type wide receiver, whereby, uh, you know, his his yards have come a lot of times in, you know, big chunk plays. Um, I think, you know, we saw that early on in the year with the, uh, the big plays against the Dolphins. Um, I think he's shown like some nice some nice underneath work um, at points throughout games. But I think his biggest impact in the playoffs is going to be um, potentially creating some big plays. I wouldn't necessarily be expecting some kind of um, eight-catch performances from him, but I think he absolutely has the speed to to cause defences huge problems. Um, and it, it wouldn't shock me that much to see him find some big plays. All right. All right. I'm a little concerned. 65 receiving yards the last five games now for Marquise Brown. So not what they want. Uh, the loss of Ingram uh, obviously is a concern as far as as far as I am. Now, we heard from the person most incented to lie about injuries, Harbaugh, yesterday that that Ingram is on schedule to return for the playoff game. But uh, how much of a hit does the read option take specifically? Because I think Ingram, one of the things he's brought is being really good with the mesh point, even better than Edwards. Uh, in terms of, uh, of of his ability to allow that football to be pulled late, uh, in particular. Yeah, I think, and again, this is an anecdotal point, but it looks it looks to me watching the games when when Edwards is in that there's just not the same um, kind of on the same pageness between him and Lamar in terms of making those things um, click really smoothly. So uh, the other thing I think is kind of an, a non football reason for the for Ingram being a key um, loss is just his energy levels have kind of matched Lamar throughout the season. I think not having him on the field um, potentially has a little bit of a, a kind of motivational down point as well. He's been he's been so good at hyping everyone up that, you know, it'll be a shame to not see him out there um, being able to build on those things. Um, I, I just think in general, it, you know, when we when the off season when we were heading towards the off season and there was loads of talk of Le'Veon Bell um, going to Baltimore, Mark Ingram Thank just God felt that like that didn't happen. Yeah, I mean, especially <laughs> for well, like an extra eight million a season or something ridiculous like that, maybe even more. Ingram just felt like the perfect fit for you know what what Lamar Jackson gives the offense is. Yeah, that threat on the edge that you know makes teams have to respect him and allows your running back to build up ahead of steam and run at linebackers. Um, and Ingram's just the perfect guy to do that. I think he he looks like he's played the best football of his career this year. Um, just getting to run at people, uh, run over some people, and then you know we've seen it even create some big plays for him. So uh, I definitely think uh, Gus Edwards can contribute. A lot. I mean, I, I don't necessarily think that their overall rushing production takes a huge step back with Ingram out and um, Edwards in, because I think he's a solid enough runner in his own right, and I think Justice Hill can make some big plays. But the worry is that there's not quite the same understanding um, at the mesh point between Gus Edwards and, and Lamar, um, and you potentially then, that's where the bad luck can come in, as if, you mm -hmm. know... All, all it takes is the ball to bounce the wrong way and it can go back the other way for a touchdown or it's a big turnover that sets up a short field. Yeah, there you go. Um, we talked about the ascendance of the Chiefs and I think everybody's pretty much at a point where they're the Ravens' biggest playoff obstacle upcoming. But I, I wanted to get your opinion on how serious the, the loss of Thornhill is to their secondary. 
Yeah, I think it's fairly significant. Um, Eric Eager, one of the one of our data scientists at work, um, he said something today. I'm sure what he said was that um, he's been, I think, their fifth most valuable player in terms of you know, what his contributions have been um, to the team. So it's a huge loss for their for their secondary um, and a defense that had played has played really well, um, really well, has played significantly better than it had been um, in the last few weeks. Um, I think Matthew is obviously the biggest player there um, for them in the, on the back end. But outside of that, I think Thornhill is the one player they could afford to lose the least. So I, I think it has the potential to to be a pretty significant loss for them. All right. They've had they've had fairly good uh, success, at least on the defense this year, at keeping their team team healthy. But uh, uh, I agree that that you know he's he's one of their fastest players. I don't know if he's quite as fast as some of their cornerbacks, but he certainly has that great ability to uh, to cover a wide, uh, deep circle on the field when he's in when he's in a deep cover position. Anyway, uh, just anyway, I'm I'm. When I saw it, I thought this is really going to hurt the Chiefs. Is uh, is uh, was my immediate reaction. I want to take a, a time to to talk about any skill position players you'd like to. We've obviously meandered through this a little bit in terms of the game and whatnot, and we've hit on a lot of the individual skill position players. Is there anybody else you'd like to bring up at this point that that we could spend a couple of minutes on? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the interesting thing for me throughout the entire season for Baltimore has been. Obviously, Mark Andrews is the big threat at tight end. But I think what people probably don't give enough credit to, um, maybe not necessarily within Baltimore, but kind of league-wide, is that the the trio um, and having uh, Nick Boyle and Hayden Hurst behind him, they all do a lot of things pretty well. I think Hayden Hurst has shown from the big run um, after the catch against the Bills. He had a nice kind of one-handed grab um, Mm -hmm. against the Steelers this week. You know, he became kind of the butt of the jokes because, uh, you know, everyone was talking about passing up on Lamar Jackson and, oh, well, the Ravens passed up on as well. I think Sam um, tweeted about that, that. The Ravens also passed up to draft a guy who effectively is a backup tight end for them. But I think in the, the last few weeks of the season, there's been a lot of things he's done pretty well. Um, and it allowed them this week to rest Mark Andrews heading into that game. So I think the overall strength of their tight ends um has been a huge a huge boost, especially as you said at the uh, at the top of the show, with the style of offense that Greg Roman likes to run. Um, having those guys all perform at such a high level, I think, um, has been key. We tweeted out from um, our main account this week that the Ravens are the only team with um, three tight ends with a with a, a PFF grade of seventy plus, and I think I think it's three within the top eleven graded highest graded tight ends in the NFL. Um, so just the overall strength of that group is something that I think people don't really get beyond Mark Andrews because he's been the headliner. One hand on one more PFF grading thing. That's out, that's outrageously good. And it's more outrageously good, I believe, because they share those snaps. So by each playing fewer than a full com- you know, component of tight end snaps that they're against the guys they're competing with around the league – they have to be better on a snap for snap basis, right? Because it's an accumulated uh, set of positives, which is effectively being compared to a standard distribution of outcomes for that number of snaps, right? To find out how far they are above a, a, a mean level. Is that correct? Yeah. So, so there's more, the less snaps you play, the more 
the more of a um, slant towards um, regression Reversion towards the mean will be yeah, yeah um, will be because you know you can't you can't have um, or there's there's far more variance um, when you've got fewer snaps to to kind of go off the basis of. So yeah, the fact that the fact that they have all been and Andrews is the one who's played the most snaps and is the highest grade, but the fact that the other two have graded really well um, w- within a smaller um, snap thing suggests that um, they've done some really solid work on those plays. All right, all right, outstanding. Uh, I, I did want to bring up Patrick Ricard in terms of how you guys grade him and, and how you view him. Obviously, he's been a very effective blocker uh, this year, even more so than last year when I thought he was he was, he was was quite good. What I've been a little disappointed is that they haven't really gone out on a limb to use him more as a receiver than it appeared that they might. He certainly he complements what Jackson does very well. To get a big guy out in space when a whole bunch of your other core defenders are having to, to you know, set up a rim around Jackson which really creates problems for opposing cornerbacks who have huge size disadvantages or safeties for that matter, who have a huge size disadvantage against Ricard. Yeah. Yeah. And he's graded really well. He's, he's one of the, one of the highest graded fullbacks in the league for us. Obviously not a lot of teams use, um, sorry, fullbacks, not a lot of teams use fullbacks to the level that um, the Ravens have this year in terms of um, snap counts. But yeah, his, his pass blocking grade's been really good this year, um, as is his run blocking grade. But same as you, I, I would like to see him get a little bit more work. Um, I, I would like to see him just try and utilize him more, uh, you know, take advantage of the fact that teams probably aren't expecting him to get the ball in the passing game. Um, and you can probably find some opportunities there where, you know, maybe that's something they've been saving for the playoffs, um, you know, that teams won't be expecting. They can, they can throw it to him a couple of times and try and maybe exploit for some touchdowns down near the goal line. Yeah. That's certainly funny. He's got a few receiving touchdowns on the on the season. I would just love to see them put it in the other offensive coordinator's mind that hey, the ball might go outside here. How do we defend this? Uh, would just be nice to do. All right, uh, let's move on a little bit now. In terms of the the uh, the other Super Bowl contenders, rank them as you would from one to five. Say in terms of the biggest competitors to the Ravens on, on uh, getting all the way to the Lombardi? Um, so I, I think if if you're talking about just preventing them from getting there, I think Kansas City are the biggest threat. Um, beyond Kansas City, I think you then start to look to the NFC. Um, and I think it's really close between San Francisco and New Orleans. Um, I think San Francisco are the most likely team to get there based on um, having home field. Mm-hmm. Um and outside of that, I think those two are the two teams who are the biggest threat. Uh, the biggest th- three teams are the biggest threat. Outside of that, I think you then take um, a little bit of a step back. Um, in the NFC, outside of those top two teams, I think it's really tough to get a handle on. It's really tough to get a handle on who Green Bay are because Aaron Rodgers, um, when he has to rip it, still has some huge throws in there. Um, but also a lot of times is very, very conservative as a passer. I think if they have any kind of lead, he's not really willing to make mistakes. Um, and outside of that, I think kind of the the Seahawks, again, they're they're kind of the opposite in that sense that, you know, they're only going to go as far as Russell Wilson can take them. They, they're, the rest of their team this year um, has really not been that good. Um, they've lost key, key players at running back, and obviously they've brought Marshall Lynch back, but... 
it's really going to be about how far Marshall, uh, how far Russell Wilson can carry them. Um, so I think that probably limits them from getting to the Super Bowl. Um, the rest of the teams in the AFC, and maybe I'm going to be proven wrong, but I just I don't see how this New England Patriots team uh, is a huge threat to the Ravens this year. I think what we saw, I, I saw a lot of people talking after the the game in Baltimore earlier in the season about how you know if New England didn't have the the uh, the fumble that was returned for a touchdown, that game is totally different. Mm-hmm. But that game was seventeen nothing when um, the Ravens had the the fumble and the muffed punt. Um, you know, one occurring at seventeen nothing, and the other when the Patriots scored. That game might have been you know a twenty four nothing or beyond before the Patriots had even been able to get on the board um, had it not been there. So unless New England show a significant um, step up in how they defend against Lamar Jackson, I'm really not convinced that they can score enough with how their offense is played to really be a threat against uh, against the Ravens without a lot of luck. So I think the reality right now in terms of on paper, I think there's three main threats. Um, and I think I'd put Kansas City top just because they're also in the AFC. And then uh, probably San Francisco just above New Orleans and then New Orleans. I think th- those are the three biggest biggest threats right now. Okay, that's the way I'd have it too, I think. The New Orleans, I kind of wondered if they should be the second or third highest because they might have to go to Green Bay and play a game. So that, yeah. that, that is obviously a very difficult you know, round for them. But certainly if they come out of the NFC, that's that's not going to be the question. I just think San Francisco is more adaptable to playing that game outside. I know it's just so unfair to, to always load this on Drew Brees. Saints fans just can't stand it when you talk about him not being able to play outside the dome. But <laughs> the fact of the matter is that, that you know if they play that game in Miami, that's a much better arrangement for Lamar than he's had these last few weeks in terms of weather. And it's a worse situation for Drew Brees. Yeah, and I mean, I can't remember a team like the Saints who, you know, have played like a number one seed throughout the season, um, you know, survived Breeze's injury earlier in the year, but their path to the Super Bowl is probably going on the road to Green Bay and then probably going on the road to That's San Francisco. Fair. So, I mean, that they, they've got very unlucky um, just with the way the seasons have worked out there because it was all based on tiebreakers in the end. But it really, I, I think it, it makes it very tough for them to make it to the Super Bowl. Um, just because Green Bay in January is not going to be a fun place to, to go and play. Um, and San Francisco at home, I think, gives them the best chance to, to beat them. All right. Outstanding, Gordon. I'm going to give three MVPs in this in this game. I, I just do it every show, so I want to do it from three to one here. Justice Hill gets my number three for his game. I thought the broken tackle run early in that game, the eight-yard broken tackle run, was one of the really good runs of the year for the Ravens. And they've certainly had a lot of good ones, but to, to have three guys that he, he basically ran right through for that touchdown, very impressive. He did some other things well in terms of running and receiving in the game, so I had him at number three. Yeah, I mean, I think that's entirely fair. I think it was nice to see him get a little bit more work um, and be able to um, kind of show the the different skill set he has compared with the other guys in the backfield who get more of the touches. All right. My number two guy, Orlando Brown, he's just he's on a good run right now. But this was a, a, a fine game from him in terms of not making significant mistakes, did allow one quarterback hit, but uh, otherwise was very solid. Yeah, uh, it, it's hard to argue any of that. He yeah, in his role, limiting mistakes is going to be arguably the the most important thing for him, and it's something I think he's got a lot better at this year. 
All right. And then my number one is Gus Edwards. I don't think there's a lot of a lot of question about that. He did have a fumble in the game, but uh, otherwise he really kept the offense going on a week where they didn't have Lamar. Yeah, I thought it was a really nice you know, coming from um, Ingram being out hurt. Um, he showed that he can you know, he can keep the, the running game going, um, taking advantage of what the offensive line gave him and, you know, powering downfield. All right. I'm going to I'm going to green room the mailbag for this episode because we're already at about a, an hour and 20 here. I can't thank you enough, Gordon, for coming on and spending some extra time with us, getting a good football conversation with a good guest. It always seems to run very long here, but we really appreciate you you being on the show and you're one of our favorite people. Hope you'll come back and visit us at some point during the playoffs. Yeah, anytime. I'm always happy to come on and talk football. All right. And Gordon, tell us a little bit more. Any Anything you want to plug before you get off the air? Where, where can people find you on Twitter? Where can they find any writing you might do? Uh, so right now, I mean, everything I'm doing is uh, is pushing the, the PFF social media. So um, if anyone isn't, go and follow the PFF main account, which is at PFF. Um, we're really trying to push uh, a lot of interest and stuff um, as opposed to in the past. I think we got a little bit bogged down with just pushing highest graded players from individual games and things like that. We're now trying to find some things that are really interesting and you know can showcase um, the value of some of the things we have. So I'd encourage everyone to to check that out. All right. Outstanding. Gordon, thanks again for being our guest. And we appreciate you folks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. sports for fans by fans find more great shows like this at birdlandsports.com introducing the lowe's list for innovation while our aisles are filled with innovative products we've selected our favorites just for you like the exclusive whirlpool washer with industry first two-in-one removable agitator we love this washer because you can customize any load and with other smart features to streamline your laundry routine, this product is a must-have for families. Shop the full Lowe's list of top picks at Lowe's.com. Lowe's, home to any budget, home to any possibility. U.S. only. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.